Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. My name is Jen Hoyer, and today I'm talking with Marissa Holmes, author of Organizing Occupy Wall Street, This Is Just Practice, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2023. This book is the first study of the processes and structures of the Occupy Wall Street movement written from the perspective of a core organizer who was involved from the inception to the end. While much has been written on OWS, few books have focused on how the movement was organized. Marissa Holmes aims to fill this gap by deriving the theory from the practice and analyzing a broad range of original primary sources. And in doing so, Marissa reveals how the movement was organized in practice, which experiments were most successful, and what future generations can learn. Marissa Holmes is an organizer, filmmaker, writer, and educator based in Brooklyn, New York. Marissa, welcome to New Books Network. Thanks for having Uh, me. And before we... Yeah, yeah, I'm really um, excited to connect about this book. But before we start talking about the book, I would love if you could introduce yourself a little bit for listeners, uh, where you grew up and went to school and what brought you to your work with media and in media studies. Right. Well, I grew up in the Midwest, um, mostly in Ohio, and I had some awareness of you know, political causes and movements. Um, I, you know, sort of came of age during the anti-war movement. And my grandpa was like a peacenik who was part of Central Ohioans for Peace. So I went to some of those, you know, demonstrations. Um, that was probably my first, you know, exposure to to doing actions. Um, and then I moved to Chicago and I got involved in the new Students for a Democratic Society, SDS, um, which of course was playing on the history and legacy of the original SDS in the 60s. And I learned a lot through that process. Um, I you know, got a chance to meet movement elders um, and uh, also just a lot of young people who were um, interested in doing actions around around the war, but also interested in building directly democratic and participatory structures. Um, so I learned how to facilitate and how to plan actions and kind of ran around the country for a couple of years trying to build up SDS. And, you know, we had 120 chapters uh, within a year and then kept growing from there, um, using this you know horizontal and, and democratic model, um, and I also um, got involved in the media working group, um, and I was going to like the local Chicago Independent Media Center, which um, was one of the the last remaining vestiges of the indie media network. Um, so, you know, I thought about how to use media as a you know tool for social change and tell people's stories. So yeah, this combination of influences was there, you know, pretty, pretty early on, um, you know, when I was 19, 20, um, as an undergrad. And yeah, and then I I was able to use, you know, some of the the skills that I learned to to organize Occupy, <laughs> which um was really fortunate. I, I feel very fortunate to have had that experience. I think, you know, we could do a better job um, mentoring and uh, bringing up generations of young people because young people really are <laughs> the ones who who tend to make revolutions happen. And 
yeah, they're just, they're more open um, and, and ready to experience things. Um, so yeah, something I think about a lot now as, as a teacher, you know, how, how can I do that? Because it was really important to me, you know, um, and I hope I can do that for other people. Totally. It sounds like you like found your way into spaces where that learning and um, growing was a really natural part of the work you could do. And we have to be intentional about making those spaces. Yeah. So then uh, turning to this book, Organizing Occupy Wall Street, This Is Just Practice. Could you talk a bit about the goals for writing this book? Uh, why you think it's important in this moment and what readers you're hoping you'll connect with? Yeah. So radical histories tend to be forgotten. <laughs> they tend to be, you know, buried um, in kind of, you know, narratives of, of confusion, narratives that um, that are perpetuated by, you know, the mainstream media and by kind of cultural institutions and um, I, you know, thought as, as someone who tells stories and, you know, is, is a media maker, um, I had, I had to counter some of the dominant, you know, narratives that were coming out around Occupy. So, uh, often, you know, I, I would hear, uh, Occupy was just, you know, this like, anarchist horizontal mess of things right um that we didn't have any clear organization or structure and you know we just didn't really know what we were doing that you know having a, a leaderless you know movement was just not not the way to go you know like this kind of blaming of of the anarchists <laughs> and of course that was very frustrating because um we did a lot of organizing. <laughs> we did build structures that were very intentional. Um, sometimes we were the only ones who who did that. Uh, and the people who later were like, oh, you really need organization actually didn't want to have uh, organization at the time because they didn't want to be accountable for their actions. Um, so I wanted to, you know, to show that the, the more anarchistic and autonomous, you know, uh, practices that we were engaging in worked and they they worked like at a scale that you know was much uh greater than than what we could have ever imagined right um in hundreds of other cities across the world um and in solidarity with other movements um so yeah i so i wanted to do that i wanted to get that that story across i also wanted to um, counter this this narrative about the Bernie Sanders campaign and electoral politics more broadly. Um, you know, there's this kind of drumbeat that that we evolved from chaos and confusion <laughs> into this like organized political force, um, and that we we all became you know Bernie Sanders supporters, and and that's just not not the case. And you know, Occupy was very explicitly, you know, part of this wave of movements, um, you know, in the Arab Spring and in, you know, 15M and Sigma in Europe um, that rejected representative democracy. Like that was the main thing that we were doing by going to the square, the square, the site of, you know, uh, of participation and, you know, uh, public uh, engagement, you know, with, with social and political life. And, yeah, um, the fact that that is the exact opposite narrative 
you know, that, that really bothered me. And I, you know, I wanted to make sure that people understood that, um, that we are not engaging in electoral politics and that, you know, that trajectory is not an outgrowth out of, you know, doesn't come from Occupy Wall Street. That's a, a co-optation of Occupy Wall Street um, by some people who, you know, maybe always wanted uh, to have that be the case who are working with the Democratic Party. So, uh, yeah, so I wanted to, to address that. I also wanted to address the um the narrative that sometimes you'll see on the uh, the radical left, especially um, in anarchist circles, that that Occupy was was populist in a very broad sense um, and included, you know, uh, openly like um, libertarian and then fascist uh, voices. And uh, obviously, there are some people who uh, later, you know, developed those politics. And I, you know, I talk about that in the book. But it doesn't mean that that Occupy Wall Street itself, you know, um, embraced, you know, (laughs) embraced all kinds of of populism or something. That's just not, that's not the case at all. Um, You know, it's very much rooted in, in the history of and you know, practice of the left um, and of the anti-authoritarian left. So it, it would just be completely um, completely wrong to characterize it in, in that way. And some of us had experience, you know, in anti-fascist movements before and after Occupy. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to make sure that that, that came across, um, that, you know, Occupy was part of, part of the left and um, and, you know, that anti-fascism is a more logical kind of outgrowth than, um, than fascism, for sure. So, uh, yeah, and I, I guess I I just wanted to write something that would be uh, as honest <laughs> as possible, you know, uh, you know, drawing from primary sources, drawing from firsthand experiences, um, and you know, analyzing from from within the movement. You know, I really sort of saw myself as this uh, participant observer or, you know, observing participant, as Ray Gordon would say, but someone who, you know, was really embedded in the thing and, and organized um, and then, you know, had my own analysis. Um, so, yeah, I, I've seen a lot of narratives of Occupy from the outside that just don't capture the... <laughs> uh the 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 complicated beautiful mess that it was <laughs> you know um and don't come away with the lessons that i think are most useful for for future generations who are coming up so um i wanted to correct that so i hope that i did that was a little bit long yeah. <laughs> no um i mean i was actually thinking um you you mentioned like being a person who works in media and and this idea of storytelling and that really um, hit me I think in terms of how we connect this story to new generations that are not super aware of Occupy. I have definitely worked with high school students who are pretty unsure as to what the Occupy movement was if they've heard of it at all and I think that the story you've told is um, is one that I think because it's so personal and um, because of the style you've written, I think it's really accessible to folks who were not there, who are not familiar with it. Um, there's a ton of material here, but it's presented in these these stories um, that connect folks with 
the movement. Um, yeah. Um, and so then looking, looking at the specific, um, chapters of the book, there are many, um, you cover an impressive amount of material. The first three though, actually look at events before Occupy Wall Street, both in New York City and around the world. So could you talk more about the threads and movements that brought people together for Occupy in New York City? And um, because you focused so much on process here, what was the infrastructure and processes that were set up prior to the occupation? Sure. So, yeah. So Occupy was, um, you know, as I said, part of this global revolution that was already underway. Um, it was definitely internationalist um, and in a unique sense, <laughs> um, you know, drawing on experiences in real time and connecting with people. Um, so I, you know, I write a little bit in the book about my experience going to Egypt. Um, I have been following from a, a distance as a lot of people were, I think, uh, at the time in 2011, in the spring 2011. And I really wanted to to do more than just, you know, watch from, from the sidelines, from a computer screen or from my phone and, um, and try to help, you know, what was already underway. So I connected with some folks from the revolutionary youth movement, um, and in particular, April 6th online, and they happened to be coming to New York for their first, you know, U.S. tour. And I organized an event for them. Um, and it was a really great discussion. Um, sort of bridging student and youth movements um, because I had you know, been in SDS um, and also like the response to the economic crisis. Um, There's this group Uncut, uh, US Uncut, which had modeled its itself after the UK Uncut group um, that was doing these kind of flash mob bank occupations. So it's kind of a mix of like youth movement and you know, response to the economic crisis, um, and then this international, you know, wave that was going on. Um, so we talked about that at the event, and then they they wanted me to come to Egypt uh, and see for myself what was going on, and kind of report back to the movement in the U.S. and see what was possible. Uh, so I, I took them up on their offer, <laughs> and decided to to go and do some kind of independent reporting and truth out said that they would cover you know some of my costs and publish what I wrote so uh that's what I yeah that's what ended up happening I, I went and it was uh it was a really incredible experience to see um to see a place so clearly in the the throes of revolution you know there was this possibility that that was in the air and uh, ever, I mean, everyone like, you know, just on the street, if you, you know, encounter people on the street, like selling juice or whatever, or, you know, at the, the, um, place where I was staying, you know, at the check-in, like I, everyone had an opinion about, you know, what the future of Egypt should be and what the re you know, region could look like. And, um, they were so engaged, um, and just realizing that, and then seeing also in the square itself, um, because there was this call to like go back and occupy the square again. Um, uh, people engaging in these, you know, small group conversations, you know, there was no, there wasn't like one leader, you know, dictating how everything should go. Um, people were really, 
in in their own small groups and and you know it was a very uh diverse and you know broad section of uh, cross section of society obviously with you know the muslim brotherhood and you know secular youth activists and you know old ladies and just every everyone that you can think of um adding their own their own you know contribution to to the space and so yeah, meeting activists there and seeing, you know, from for myself how it was operating really um, made me believe that it was, you know, it was possible to do something something in the United States that was similar. Um, and I felt a responsibility to do it because the United States uh, was still, you know, providing like military weapons. You know, there are all these contracts um, to suppress the the revolution that was underway. So I thought it was strategic, you know, to, you know, especially coming from this anti-war background <laughs> to, you know, do something in the United States. And so that was my experience. And then um, some other people that I knew who were media activists in New York had gone to Spain to support 15M. And I mean, this was not totally coordinated. We just independently <laughs> went and then we came back and were inspired, you know, by by what we had seen in both places. And um, yeah, and then we formed the the media working group as a result. Um, and also, you know, in the the early assemblies. Um, so, you know, we had uh, these early assemblies responding to the Adbusters call in the summer. Um, that you know, New York City General Assembly, the NYCGA, was the organization that we created, and. Uh, out of that, we had a lot of different working groups, um, but the there were definitely connections with you know 15M uh, people outside of media as well. Um, so like in the outreach working group, there were folks from 15M. There are also people you know doing actions that were part of 15M. Um, so we we were sharing things in real time, um, either through the the media or through direct experience. Um, yeah. Does that, I hope that answers your question. I feel, I feel like they're kind of two different It does, questions. it does. And I think like what I found so helpful in having like many chapters of this book that are before the initial moment of occupation is I think you have really clearly shown that it was not this spontaneous thing that just happened one day in September, but that there was so much intention and um, process laid through the the New York City General Assembly and these working groups that came together. Like there was um, there was a lot of like clear thinking. Um, I'm sure a lot of it felt spontaneous too, but it was not all one impromptu thing. And that's one of that's one of the myths that I think sometimes goes around. Yeah, definitely. I mean. You know, we had meetings every Saturday uh, throughout the summer leading up to September 17th. And we used a modified consensus process um, where we would you know, try to reach consensus and then go to a two-thirds majority vote if we needed to. Um, but everyone, you know, everyone's views were taken into account and we tried to to sort of live this participatory ethos. Um, and that worked, you know, people kept coming back. <laughs> because they, you know, they felt like they were heard. Um, yeah. And a lot of the seeds of, you know, what uh, would develop later in the park happened 
there in the assembly. So, you know, as I said, there were these working groups. Um, so there was, you know, the media group, this, you know, student and labor outreach group, the, uh, you know, tactical working group that did scouting and research of places in the financial district. Um, yeah, so much research <laughs> uh, went into the the pre-planning, um, which also is is often forgotten. You know, um, I feel like it's it's just not emphasized a lot in in movement spaces or in action planning. But um, yeah, you want to know about your your target and the space you're going to be in and all the various you know legal ramifications and. And you can find interesting cracks, you know, um, these these uh, these places that that you would you would normally just look over, you know, you would not um, think about as as potential sites for action. Um, so, like we found the the pops, um, the privately owned public spaces, um, which are constantly being developed, you know. Uh, it's not like a set thing. Uh, there are hundreds now in New York, and uh, often they don't have clear rules or expectations. So, um, yeah. So research helps. Uh, the, the fact the fact that we that we did that research on Zakati Park um, and you know had it as a backup location was was really key. It allowed us to you know to buy time to stay there. Um, because there is this, you know, bureaucratic issue with, you know, is it is it public or private or who has jurisdiction? Who's going to call what shot here? And so the the city didn't immediately crack down. They're waiting on on Brookfield, and yeah, I think um, that was you know a good tactical tactical move that we made. But um, but it would not have been possible if we hadn't done all this this pre planning. Um, so yeah, that's one thing that the food committee. Uh, was a lot of food not bombs folks um, who you know obviously had a, a lot of history cooking meals for for protests and um, and for houseless folks in the city and so they brought some of that that infrastructure into into the planning and then you know the people's kitchen developed out of that um, you know the media working group um, became the the media center had a physical you know location in the park. Um, yeah, there are a lot of examples, but, um, it really, it was this kind of emergent process where like we, we had the scaffolding of, of an organization and then we were able to, to build it out more, um, as more people came. Awesome. Um, so then I guess shifting to the occupation itself, this is what you get into in depth in about chapters four through 13, looking at groups and processes that emerged through the occupation. Um, so I guess thinking about like the really big timeline that your narrative gives to the occupation, what are some key moments and groups that you, you chose to highlight and um, why did you think these were important? And I want to know, I was really interested um, in how you framed the day-to-day -day work through Kropotkin's reflections on mutual aid, because this framed some of my own reading of the book. And so I'd love if you could talk about how the groups and events you write about really embodied forms of mutual aid at Liberty Plaza. Yeah. So the, the space itself was a liberated space, right? We didn't get a permit. We didn't ask permission. Um, we just took it through direct action. 
and then defended it. Um, and in that space, uh, liberated space, you know, we, we self-organized to meet our own needs. So, you know, we organized around food and comfort and, um, you know, uh, medical, uh, issues if they came up, um, there were street medics who then later, you know, had a medical tent, um, and even like veterinarians who would <laughs> come and take care of dogs, um, that were, you know, that were part of, part of the community at, at Liberty Plaza. Um, but it, it really was mutual aid. It wasn't just, uh, fundraising and it wasn't just meeting, you know, meeting immediate needs, um, but it, you know, it was mutual. We were we were supporting each other and organizing together in this this community that developed um, out of the plaza. So, yeah, um, and and it's amazing how how organic all of that was. Um, I mean, we had some of this structure set up, obviously, but also people just knew how to cooperate. <laughs> um, you know, so sometimes. Sometimes I wonder, I, I'm sure, you know, we've all wondered, like, can, can people work together? You know, can they cooperate? And then, you know, when you're in a space like that, when you're in this kind of liberated, you know, zone, um, people can, uh, I, I mean, I, I saw it, people who never knew each other before, total strangers, you know, who you would pass on the street, like all of a sudden were, um, we're actively engaging in building this, you know, new society together. And yeah, and I mean, they wanted to help and they wanted to do all kinds of things, you know, that are not glamorous tasks, even like, you know, cooking meals or doing sanitation, um, you know, doing community watch and de-escalating conflicts that come up. I mean, this is hard work, um, and especially hard work, like when you're constantly under siege, you know, by the, the NYPD and other forces. And um, yeah, but, but people would do it. It wasn't, it didn't feel like, uh, didn't feel like pulling teeth. It didn't feel like, you know, I was ever like asking too much or like, you know, um, yeah, people just volunteered their time and energy to make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you write, like so clearly about all of those groups and the different things they were taking on and what stood out to me but like maybe it stood out to me because I spend so much time in libraries and archives was the wealth of source material you had to draw on and I I mean maybe also you have a terrific memory but I assume that that you were aided by being able to go back to the material that that you're referencing, um, media and emails, and and I'm wondering actually if you can just talk a little bit about where you went for source material, which may have been your own hard drives mostly, but like what kind of material you had to work with. Yeah, so I ended up with the Occupy Wall Street Media Working Group archive, which had. Uh, a backlog of all of the live stream from the occupation and, and after the occupation and also footage that people shot, um, you know, that was not live at the time on, you know, DSLRs or whatever they had access to um, and some photos and audio recordings. So that's, um, yeah, that's what I was drawing on in addition to, to my own 
work. I mean, there's some overlap, obviously, because I was in the media working group. <laughs> so, you know, my materials is in this archive, but uh, I also had things that I, you know, were, that I never put in the archive that were sort of on my own. So, um, so I looked at both and then I looked at uh, the meeting minutes from the NYCGA and the Spokes Council, which are pretty well archived online. You know, you can go now on like the Wayback Machine and, and download all of those. Um, I looked at collective statements, um, which are also, you know, public, um, such as the Declaration of Occupation and the Principles of Solidarity, Statement of Autonomy. And yeah, and then I went back into um, various listers and <laughs> correspondence, um, which I had kept. And uh, yeah, and also social media posts. Um, so anything that was you know, that was publicly accessible or that I, you know, had had a relationship about, um, you know, like if I knew the person, I knew it would be okay to share. Um, that's what I, that's what I included, but uh, I was involved in a lot of things. <laughs> so um, yeah, I mean, I, I just had, I had it. And then I had notes from the, you know, community dialogues um, and we had recorded all of those. Uh, so yeah, uh, I was able to to reconstruct scenes and um, actually get direct quotes from people, you know, and reflect what they what they said at the time. And I think probably uh, people forget what they said at the time. <laughs> you know, years years later, you know, maybe they've had other experiences and come come away with different analyses or whatever. But at you know at the time, I, I wanted to reflect the just the the urgency and the and the earnestness, you know, of of that moment and how people were relating to each other. Um, so, yeah, it was quite a lot of work, but you know, it was a good project for the pandemic. You know, being um, sequestered away in a room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fair point. Yeah. I mean, I think that maybe that you know, the way you had that source material and could work with it to reconstruct scenes and provide a lot of direct quotes that really did for me as a reader who wasn't there, like it allowed me to connect more. Um, and I was excited about the wealth of source material. Um, so I guess like uh, moving on a little bit in in discussion of what you've written about here, um, in your writing about the occupation itself, you also look at issues around race and gender. And so I would love if you could talk for listeners uh, a little bit about how race, gender, and capital or resources uh, played out at Occupy and what lessons you think we can take from those today. Yeah. So on race, um, I talk about Occupy in the context of uh, the Obama presidency and this very dominant post-racial um, narrative at the at the time, um, and yeah, and I, I talk about how uh, notions of of inclusivity um, played out in the park. Um, so there was this idea that you know, for horizontal and everyone's equal, you know, then. Um, then we're already inclusive uh, of everyone who comes. And of course, that's that's not the case because uh, there are different experiences and there are you know, ways that power plays out you know, in, in these spaces. 
And um, yeah, so there was a pushback, you know, from the People of Color Caucus that developed in the park. Um, and they were, you know, trying to address some of these dynamics and um, they held anti-oppression workshops and um, they tried to, you know, they tried to organize themselves and, you know, educate occupiers and really bring an anti-racist lens to um, to the work that we were doing. And, you know, to some degree, they were successful in, in, in that. And there were multiracial, you know, actions that happened and relationships that, that formed out of that. Um, I write a lot about Troy Davis and the you know potential of of what happened and in, in response to you know to his case and you know, to to his execution in Georgia. Um, and I mean, I have to say it was it was kind of startling to go back and uh, watch all of this material <laughs> that I had shot. Um, because I even I had forgotten, you know, having gone through Black Lives Matter, multiple rounds of Black Lives Matter, you know, the 2014-15 wave and then the George Floyd wave in 2020. Um, like I, I had forgotten that it was already present, you know, a lot, a lot of the same, uh, obviously the same problems, the same structural problems, you know, existed and also um, some of the same same rhetoric and you know, same debates existed like in, in the Troy Davis, you know, uh, case and moment. Um, so it, it felt very it felt like it could have been 2020, you know, but it wasn't, <laughs> it was 2011. So that was interesting. And yeah. And then on gender, I mean, there, there was a big effort from the safer spaces committee. I focus on, on them, um, to address, you know, all, all forms of, of oppression. So they, they had an intersectional lens that they were bringing. They weren't just, you know, focused on gender, but um, they did happen to be like mostly, mostly women or, you know, queers or femme queers, you know, who were involved in, in the work. Um, and yeah, they, um, they organized around, you know, rapes that happened in the park and, uh, harassment that happened and all of that was, was very real. Um, and it's not, it wasn't encouraged uh, to talk about it openly or to talk about it in the press because um, some people who, you know, were doing PR were uh, very cautious about the, about the image, you know, and didn't want to discredit uh, Occupy. But um, I think it's important to acknowledge that, you know, that these things uh, happened and also that we responded to them, you know, um, because they happen all the time, like in the world, <laughs> you know, like the, if you're on a street in Manhattan or, you know, not even a street, but, you know, if you're, um, but certainly if you're out, out in public, you know, it's, it's probably bound to happen that like there, there are rapes or, you know, there's harassment that occurs. Um, and, you know, at least we, we did actually have processes in place, you know, and tried to have an abolitionist approach, um, so yeah, so I talk about that uh, in the book, and I uh, talk a lot about how race and gender um, intersected with <laughs> with class, um, and you know ways that that resources were consolidated. Um, so the houses folks who were staying in the park, who were you know predominantly uh, poor, you know, or working class BIPOC folks. Um, they didn't have access to 
to decision making in the same way. They didn't have access to, you know, to the resources in the same way. Um, and, you know, I tried, at, you know, at the time, I tried to to rectify the situation and have these community dialogues. You know, I worked with a number of other folks who were amazing and, you know, tried to, <laughs> to address these, these dynamics. Um, but uh, certainly the people who had access to resources, um, you know, foundation resources or um, uh, who are connected with, you know, with nonprofits and with, you know, the Democratic Party, um, they didn't care about, you know, addressing equity. So uh, it was, it was difficult to actually make that happen. Um, yeah, but it's, it's something that, that continues to be an issue, you know? You know, we have if we're actually going to build a horizontal equitable movement then we we need to to deal with these questions um we we need to address like our own internal power dynamics and we need to you know distribute resources in a way that um that makes it possible for people to to participate and sustain their their involvement um yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that was why I was glad that you highlighted those specific things because they they continue to be issues in our um in our movements, in our spaces and maybe there's something about like talking about them in the context of other movements at other times and places maybe gives us tools for talking about the same issues like here and now, whatever that here and now is for us, um, which is maybe a good segue to talking about like um, the aftermath of Occupy. Aftermath sounds dramatic, but um, the there after you talk about the occupation itself, there are several chapters that look at events and issues um, after the official occupation of Liberty Plaza, um, including other occupations as well as conflict co-optation of the movement like you referenced um at the the top of this interview so i guess i mean it's hard to it's hard to even get at all of them but like what are what are some of the big impacts that you saw occupy having and and the most pressing lessons to learn from the movement well before occupy uh, you couldn't really talk about capitalism <laughs> openly in in the mainstream, right? Um, and we definitely changed that, uh, and especially for younger generations. And I, you know, I feel feel good about that. Um, we also introduced, you know, a whole set of practices around taking space. Obviously, there have been other occupations historically, you know, like going back, I mean, you could talk about the anti-nuke movement, you could talk about, you know, the the new left in the 60s, there are a lot of examples. Um, but it really became a more kind of accepted mode of, of, uh, of action. Um, and, and across different, different movements, you know, certainly in Black Lives Matter, like the the space of convergence was really important. You know, you can talk about like uh, the nightly, you know, demonstrations and convergences around memorial sites in Ferguson um, and that kind of setting a stage for, you know, for similar, um, 
similar things in New York and, and other places. Um, and then obviously around the George Floyd Memorial site as well. Um, I mean, in 2020, we saw multiple <laughs> liberated zones. You know, we saw the, the trans in Seattle, we saw uh, Abolition Park in New York. Um, so it seems that even if even if there isn't a direct lineage, even if people don't have the experience themselves of having gone through these previous occupations and aren't even aware of them, um, they still they still do similar things. And so that that's interesting to see play out. And um, yeah, and you know, having more kind of uh, horizontal and networked forms of of organization, I think that that's become um, I don't know, more, more kind of mainstream. Um, there's not one, there's not one social movement organization that has all the resources that everyone goes to, right? Like in Black Lives Matter, there are like hundreds of different organizations. Um, and yeah, certainly with, um, with Standing Rock and then other indigenous struggles since then, struggles over pipelines. I mean, the, they're, they're very much, um, they're very much networked. Um, and yeah, I so I guess I see the the impact in terms of the practices. Um I yeah. Um I mean it seems like it was even if not everyone who has engaged in similar practices was has been cognizant of how things played out at Occupy, it has been a reminder that that tool is in our toolbox, <laughs> like that some of the practices implemented there. Um yeah. Yeah. Well, um I've, I've taken a lot of your time talking about Occupy. Before we wrap up, up, though, I would love if you could talk about what else you're working on, if you have other new projects that um, that maybe you put off while working on this, this huge book project or that grow out of this book or that go in new directions. Yeah, I'm uh, building off of this book and doing a comparative study of Occupy and Black Lives Matter. And uh, specifically making intervention and social movement theory, uh, which is very um, just very statist and very uh, kind of old school in its in its way of thinking about organization. So um, after you know going through these experiences and then reading social movement theory, I was just like, there's there's a disconnect here. I can't I cannot apply it to my own work. So. Um, yeah, so there's a need for for something else. So I, I'm I'm trying to to write that now, um, which is a more you know theoretical intervention, and yeah, and I have some other film projects as well. I mean, I shot a film with with David Graeber while he was still alive, um, and I would like to to finish that <laughs> at some point. Um, so that's kind of on the horizon. And yeah, and I mean, I still do organizing projects. I still, you know, do MAC, the Metropolitan Anarchist Coordinating Council, and um, organize in assemblies and working groups and uh, do mutual aid. So uh, for me, there's definitely a continuum from Occupy to now in terms of my, you know, more direct political work. Um. Yeah, I'm sure I'll continue to write things and make films and organize and um, and I'm teaching, right? And I really enjoy talking to young people and you know hearing about you know what's interesting to them and um, 
And I hope that some of them, you know, go out into the world and, and make their own contributions. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sounds like enough to keep you busy. Um, super. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Uh, once again, I've been chatting with Marissa Holmes, author of Organizing Occupy Wall Street. This is just practice. My name is Jen Hoyer, and you're listening to New Books Network.